The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Are you ready for the next level of leadership? It's going to be here before you know it. Today's leaders need the skills, connections, and savvy to become top professionals in their fields. Welcome to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations with Maureen Metcalf. In the next hour, you'll meet people who have become successful at the helm of some of the most respected organizations in the world, and you can become the next big success story. Now, here's your host, Maureen Metcalf. Hi, welcome to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf, and today we're joined by Paul Gibbons. Paul works at the nexus of science and leadership, philosophy and business, with 30 years of business experience, including investment banking, consulting, entrepreneurship, and university teaching. His consulting practice specialized in leading change and changing culture. Paul built a highly successful London-based consulting firm, Future Considerations, which he sold in 2010. In addition to building and running a successful consulting firm, Paul is an accomplished author. His new book, The Science of Successful Organizational Change, is hailed as a must-read by anyone serious about driving large-scale business change. He joins us from his home in Colorado, where he's recently relocated from Europe. He's preparing for the launch of a new consulting firm, one that will specialize in business agility and the development of programs for geeks and quants. I selected Paul as our our guest today because he's a member of a larger thought leadership community uh, that you may remember, Robin Lincoln Wood and some others. He brings valuable insights and tools into how to help us address the dramatic changes that we, we are facing. Today, Paul will talk about his book, focusing on large-scale change, and also on the concepts of agility and anti-fragile. These are foundational concepts for leaders looking to build organizations that are able to respond quickly to predicted and unpredicted change. So, Paul, thank you so much for joining us. My um, enormous pleasure, Maureen. Hello. Hi. The outcome of our show today is is going to focus really on these large-scale changes that we will all be facing. So I'd love to hear more about your background and then the book. Well, thank you, and thanks for inviting me to be on the show. Um, I, uh, I, 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 got, I began to become passionate about change in, in, 19, in the mid-1990s when I was a strategy consultant for PricewaterhouseCoopers, and I had a seminal experience, I think, one of these experiences that was so horrible that it shapes one's path for the rest of one's life. I, uh, I was a strategy consultant on a project with a group of people from very auspicious universities, Oxford and Harvard, and we were, we were called into a, an investment bank to help them design a way that they should manage their risk. So um, over the course of six months, and at a cost of about $4 million in fees to the clients, we wrote 12 volumes of recommendations on risk management to this well-known British bank, Barclays Bank. 
we then, uh, as all good consultants do, we paraded the findings of our 12 volumes around the bank from the chairman and the board to the chief executive and his team to all of the business unit teams. And everyone was enthusiastic and, and approved uh, all of the thinking and all the recommendations in the report. So I bumped into one of the executives from Barclays a few months down the road and asked him how implementation of our recommended uh, risk management practices was going. And he said that they had done absolutely nothing at all with the recommendations. And so this was one of my first consulting assignments ever. And I was extremely distraught. I had begun my work as a consultant with the idealistic idea that we would be able to help organizations change. And here was a gang of the smartest people I'd ever worked with in a really very well-run organization who thought our ideas were excellent, yet found themselves unable to do anything with them. And so uh, at the time, I, 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 I thought, I mean, one of the questions I asked myself is, how can management consultants continually advise businesses, but yet fail to be responsible for helping them do the really heavy lifting of getting change to happen? And so I took a career pivot at that moment and said, what I really want to do is not make strategy recommendations to banks, but I want to actually help uh, a wider group of businesses actually implement change. So that's part of how I got passionate and interested in the change world. And um, as a corollary um, story, um, I, in my own life, uh, began as a cigarette smoker in 1974. And in 1979, I was doing cancer research at the University of Wisconsin, and one of the things I was doing was using a carcinogen from cigarette smoke uh, in experiments with uh, little white mice. Um, it seems to me to be disgusting today, but we used to inject the little uh, white mice with uh, the carcinogen from cigarette smoke and monitor the progress of DNA and RNA synthesis to see the effect of cigarette smoking on, on living organisms. And so I was watching um, on a daily basis uh, mice dive from one of the, uh, the uh, extracts from uh, cigarette smoke. And then on every single break, coffee break, every 45 minutes, I would uh, run down to the parking lot and smoke two Marlboro cigarettes. I did this for 15, for 15 years. So despite the fact that I was producing firsthand research on cancer, and the facts of uh, the harm that cigarettes caused uh, people who smoked were right in front of my face. I, too, was able, unable to make the changes that um, were required in my own life. So I arrived in the mid-'90s, both with this horrible disaster in my consulting career, which is this project at Barclays, where they failed to accept the rationality of our uh, do anything with the rationality of our decisions and also, you know, my own struggles with making behavioral changes around smoking. So I became very interested in how human beings and organizations change. And so that's why I reinvented myself as a psychologist and an expert in organization behavior and went back to school for nearly a decade to train myself in the world of change. That's how I got into the game, if you will. It's fascinating. You and I have uh, slightly different paths, but certainly a passion around organizational change and watching good people, good companies invest in being progressive and yet not being able to figure out how to implement the recommendations that they want to implement. So did you stop smoking? Mm -hmm. I finally managed to do that. Yes, I did. Um, 
uh, in the mid-90s also. It finally, finally, it was through, well, the question that we must ask ourselves, I'm sure you ask yourself, is for human beings to change and for businesses to change, there need to be more than just good reasons. It needs to be more than facts. It needs to be more than science. And so even though my new book is called The Science of Organizational Change, the epiphany for me in the 1990s is it takes more than facts to influence people and to change behaviors. So what was it that got you to quit smoking, if that's not too personal of a question? Uh, well, it's not at all. I mean, the facts, the facts had been long known to me, but it was, a, it was, a, it was a, a, a question of making behavioral changes. So first of all, I needed an emotional context for it. And then secondly, I needed to, uh, one, of the, one of the features we'll get to in the book later on is, is control of habits. And one needs to rearrange um, the cues related to smoking and also the routines related to smoking and also rearrange the rewards related to smoking. So there are three elements of the habit cycle. And so unless you tackle those, it doesn't necessarily matter very much what you think about something. You'll be unable to break the habit. And, you know, we have habits today. We have habits, um, if you look at uh, obesity, the obesity epidemic in the United States. Um, some people believe that our addiction to fossil fuels is similarly a habit. And um, people in organizations and, and, and people in society wrestle day in and day out with changing the routines. Habits evolve for a very good reason, of course, because mm-hmm. this automatic scripting that we have allows us to deal with the complexity of the world and to respond very rapidly to stimuli without having to consciously walk through everything that we have to do in our lives. I can walk without having to calculate the amount of weight that I have to put on on each foot and the extension of my limbs. A baseball player can catch a fly ball that's traveling at 100 miles an hour. Um, They can do that, and they don't have to calculate at each step along the way the trajectory of the ball and all the differential equations that tell you where the ball is going to land. So we have these incredible habits that we develop in our lives that make life livable. But one of the things that's important for us as human beings and as a society and in businesses is to determine a way how to break up the routines which are getting in the way of prosperity and human flourishing. So habits is one of the things I became really passionate about during the 1990s. And there's been some great uh, research in the last um, five years. I think many of your readers will have perhaps read The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg. Very, very good book. And there are several others like it, which really get into the get to grips with how you make habit change. It's also one of the things I tackle in one of the later chapters in the book. I think in The Power of Habit, he talks about the idea that if we're accustomed to driving to work a certain way, mm-hmm. our office changes and how often we will drive in the wrong direction until we catch ourselves. Indeed. And have, having to do with neural pathways and and such as well. So it it has a physiological grounding as well as behavioral, right? It does indeed. Um, psychologists talk about schema. Um, uh, which are psychological scripts that run automatically. Um, so, so yes, I mean, uh, Duhigg is absolutely right. It also links into another topic, of course, that I pick up in the book, which is mindfulness, because in order to be conscious, let's take Duhigg's example of driving to work, you need to, moment by moment, bring a level of consciousness to what you're doing in order that you're able to alter the trajectory of what you're doing, whether well, that might be driving to work. 
but it also might be uh, behavioral stuff around eating or around smoking, but it also can be around executives and around leadership. You need to bring, in a sense, all of the automaticity that has been your friend up until then. You need to be able to disrupt that, and to have that choice, you need to have awareness. So we sometimes say that choice follows awareness. You cannot choose where you're not aware of the behavior or not conscious of it. So a lot of the interesting research on mindfulness has shown that it allows people to, in a sense, disrupt that automaticity more easily and um, to identify that they might be making a wrong choice. And that choice can be trivial, like driving to work, or it can be, you know, of course, much more important. So let's get into the book. I, sorry, I, I find each of these topics fascinating, and it'd be easy to go off into a bit of a tangent. So let's both why did you write the book and what are the biggest takeaways that you would like our listeners to understand from from this short conversation well um i wrote it i, I you know as one of these things i i set out to write a book in three or four months that would be the abcs of change management so i'd wanted to write a book for a very long time i was one of these people who oh, I could have been an author, or I should have been an author, or I have a book on me, or had some sort of unfulfilled ambition in that direction. And so, um, finally, I said, I was, I said, I'm just going to write the easiest book that I can write, which is a book on the standard basics of change management. And it's going to take three months. Well, the book took me two years. And inside the book is something that's far, far from the basics of change management. In fact, there's almost nothing about the basics of change management in the book. If you want, it's a very advanced treatment of change management. And so how it became that way is as I began to uh, say to myself, well, I'll just put in some interesting research from the behavioral sciences on cognitive biases, or let me put in some research on habits, or let me put on some research from change agility, or let me introduce Nassim Taleb's work on antifragility, or let me indeed introduce C.L. Daney's work on influencing. And so what began as a very ABC's book on change management really became a tour through what I think are the most important writers in the last decade. They're not change management writers. They tend to be psychologists or philosophers or scientists or neuroscientists. But how can I take all of the great learning that we have from the behavioral sciences in the last decade and, in a sense, try and help change management, the dark arts of change management, catch up? And so that, that was what the book became, was my attempt, if you will, to bring change management into the 21st century with all of the great science that we've been, uh, all the great science we've discovering about human beings in the last 15 years or so. Excuse me. So it sounds like you're integrating change management and change leadership. I am. Okay, so not just how do I manage put the the pieces in a row, but really how do I conceptualize change, visualize, and integrate these highly important theories into a construct that allows me to pivot with my company, not just as an individual, and bring everyone along. Indeed, indeed. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so let's at this point go to break, and when we come back, we'll talk about the three biggest ideas in your book. So this is Maureen Metcalf, Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations, with Paul Gibbons talking about his book on uh, the science of organizational change.
Metcalf & Associates is a management consulting and leadership development firm dedicated to helping leaders, their management teams, and their organizations implement innovative leadership and business practices to help create market differentiation necessary to thrive in this rapidly changing environment. As the author of eight award-winning leadership books, Maureen Metcalf and her associates are positioned to help you and your organization grow and thrive. Visit Metcalf-Associates.com. Maureen is ready to discuss your needs and tailor a solution to meet your needs through her expertise in keynote speaking, leadership coaching and training, transformational and organizational growth consulting. For your business, we can help with facilitated leadership retreats, organizational planning, culture alignment, individual and organizational assessments, online leadership development programs, and one-on-one or corporate-wide leadership development sessions. Move forward with Metcalf & Associates. Visit Metcalf-Associates.com. Today, enterprise technology is both strategic and global. Each week on CIO Talk Radio, IT thought leaders from around the world share their experiences with listeners as they discuss with Sunjog All how they are trimming costs and partnering with business to innovate and help IT become more competitive. This means better care for customers and improves the corporate bottom line. If you want to keep up with IT thought leadership, listen to CIO Talk Radio with Sunjog All every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel, the bottom line in business talk. Are you a business leader or executive that wants to achieve more, not just in it for profit, but to do work you find meaningful that adds more value to more people in more ways? Listen for the Business Elevation Show with host Chris Cooper. You'll hear from successful achievers from around the world with the passion and experience to offer invaluable guidance. The Business Elevation Show can be heard live on Fridays at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time, usually 4 p.m. U.K., on the Voice America Business Channel. Be more. Achieve more. You are listening to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. To reach Maureen Metcalf or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to info at metcalf-associates.com. Now, back to this week's program. Hi, welcome back. This is Maureen Metcalf with Paul Gibbons, and we're talking about Paul's new book, The Science of Organizational Change. So let's jump right into what are the biggest ideas from the book that you want our listeners to pay attention to and walk away with, since really a lot of the focus of this show is giving listeners practical tools that they can implement in their regular lives, regular business, organizational leadership lives. Uh, Thanks, Maureen. Um, Well, let me start with cognitive biases. Um, I uh, fell in love with the writings of uh, uh, an author called Daniel Kahneman, uh, who wrote a book called Thinking Fast and Slow. And so uh, several years ago, I became an ardent student of things called cognitive biases. So if you look on Wikipedia, there are hundreds of... uh, cognitive biases that um, psychologists and other people who study human behavior have diagnosed. So what's a cognitive bias? It's a systematic mistake that human beings make in solving problems, if you want. And so one of the chapters in the book is devoted to how executive teams, by becoming more conscious 
of their cognitive biases can make better leadership decisions. So how is that different from or aligned with mindfulness? Well, both um, mindfulness is certainly one of the benefits of mindfulness is increased in the moment choice. But in addition to that, having that choice, you need to know the ways in which you're systematically making mistakes. So, for example, one of the biases that human beings talk about, and I think every single reader will be, listener, reader, listener will be familiar with, is called the planning fallacy. And so we all grotesquely underestimate in our day-to-day lives how long something is going to take. That happens all the time. I think, I think, uh, I think as a as consultant, uh, Maureen, I think you're, you'll be familiar with the fact that you do it sometimes and even clients do it sometimes. And we live in this world where, um, where the effect of that planning fallacy is um, due to something called the sunk cost fallacy, which is once we've invested effort in something, we do not want to, no matter how badly things are going, abandon our efforts. So, for example, the sunk cost fallacy takes us to the Vietnam War, where it was clear that it was going to be a losing proposition for the United States. However, the argument was that to leave the Vietnam War would be doing a disservice or an injustice to the men who had already given their lives. Mm. But from a, from a rational point of view, the, it's a very sad thing, but those men have already departed. We can't do anything about that. So to take those lost lives into our calculation, the important calculation is how many more will be lost and the other costs of war in the future. And so human beings do that all with investments, for example. So once an investment falls, human beings are less inclined to sell it than they are to take a profit. And because as psychologically, what we require is some justification that we are right in the first place. None of us likes to invite uh, to admit we are wrong. So with the sunk cost fallacy and the planning fallacy together, you have two things that are very interesting. If you're undertaking major change and sometimes change might be as small as a million dollar or $2 million project. And sometimes, you know, I know uh, consultants for IBM who uh, manage change programs, which are a decade long and cost 20 or $30 billion. So these two things, the sunk cost fallacy and the planning fallacy are extraordinarily costly to organizations and, of course, in people's own lives. So those are two of the important biases in the book. So I'm thinking of instances where this comes into play where I'm working on a project that it, at the outset seemed like a brilliant idea. The world has changed, so it's not that there was a poor thinking in selecting that project, but as a competitor introduces a new project or a new a product, or something hugely significant like a recession hits, then my direction also needs to pivot. And what I hear you saying is my cognitive bias will cause me to stay the course when, in fact, I should be changing course pretty quickly. Yeah, you'll double down uh, in a way um, rather than, than um, you know, run for cover. I mean, people do it in relationships, too. I mean, uh, all the time. Now, that's another example. People do it with uh, money pit houses and money pit cars. You know, I can't possibly sell this thing because I just put $1,000 into it. And, of course, if you own a lousy car and you put $1,000, so what you ought to do is sell a lousy car. 
um, because they do become money pits. But if you've just spent $1,000 on a new brake, so you think, oh, well, I'll j- just drive it a little longer. So that sunk cost calculation happens also in relationships and happens in projects. And um, it can be very emotionally challenging to let go of something where you've made a big investment. But from a rational point of view, what matters is what you're going to get out of it, not what you've put into it. I'm going to say that again. What matters is what you're going to get out of it, not not what you're going to put into it. And so what you've done already, the history, the investment history, should be discounted. But human beings have a hard time doing that psychologically. So in the book, do you help us understand how one might make that that mental shift as uh, those of us who are leading large complex projects i do i have some examples and there are some some sort of well documented um his, business histories uh, one from intel uh, and one from nokia so I, I do have interviews with the chief executive of of, of nokia and um and uh, the chief executive of shell so so there are some some case studies from real business leaders who've confronted this sunk cost fallacy, um, and, and been able to make progress. The famous example is Andy Grove from Intel. Um, I don't know whether time permits us to go into it right now, but some of the guidance I offer is, as um, you know, not, not the result of my own wisdom, but from studying, uh, businesses who've had to confront this on a billion dollar scale, not on a $10 scale, not on a thousand dollar scale, the new brakes that I just put in my car, but on a billion dollar scale and how they've managed to do it. So yes, there are examples in the book. I, I think um, I think given our agenda, it's probably best to leave that for another phone call. Sure. Unless you're super curious. <laughs> well, I am super curious, but I'd also like to hear what are some of the other big ideas? Well, I think uh, one of the things that I've uh, come across uh, time and time again in organizations is when I've gone in as a change guy, as a change doctor, or as somebody said to me, I don't like this term, the change whisperer, as I've gone in, and what I've discovered is an organization that's so fatigued from previous change initiatives. I think we've all heard the term initiative-itis. There's so much different change coming against, up against a manager in their day-to-day job that really it's almost an exhaustion and that a new change project isn't often many of the places I've been called into work, something that's received with enthusiasm and energy (laughs) and innovation and passion. Nobody goes, Oh my God, we got, so my question is, it's not just a psychological question, but how do we get organizations to a place where every change that they undertake leaves them more, prepared, in a sense, for the next change that comes in. It leaves them more enthusiastic. You know, in the way we want with our children, as they're developing, as they're learning to walk or they're learning to read, something like that, all of the different, you know, stressors, and they don't, they don't react to them as stressors, which is part of the point, but all of the different learning journeys that we see with young people when they have joy, when they, tr- they, they celebrate from overcoming challenges. You know, the way change is managed in organizations and led in organizations right now, you know, it's not seen in most places, as something's welcome. So anyway, that leads me to the concept of change agility, is how do you create workforces and organizations where change isn't uh, something that an organization has to endure, uh, sometimes at great psychological cost and sometimes at the cost of efficiency. So change agility is one of my, one of my signature concepts. And, and one of the things that I'm considering, there's so much energy and passion around change agility at the moment that I'm thinking of having it be one of the organization principles of my new consulting firm. But more on that in January when I launch. 
Okay. Well, and and the idea of change saturation is something that's really dear to my heart because I've been doing consulting in the space of org transformation for decades now, and it seems like it's one of the biggest challenges going into an organization that, as you point out, is absolutely exhausted, and even worse, well-intended groups doing important change, but each of those changes impact the same groups of people. So we're undoing and stepping on one another, and our frontline people are are confused. They often think we're idiots for not coordinating. They don't. It, it appears that we, as the leaders, don't know which direction things are going. And an example for for one of my clients, we did. It sounds simplistic, but it the end to end process changes for all of the the initiatives going on at one time, and then kind of grouped the the job changes in buckets and time phase them so that the individuals could implement behavioral changes. We hired, we changed roles, a, a huge redo of an organization, and then introduced systems later so that the probability of a human being being able to implement all of the change at the same time and actually pick up the phone and answer a customer's question with any competence went up, right? Because it's astounding the volume and the impact that any single person who's customer facing, and then the organization looks, uh, loses, in our client's eyes, we lose trust. And now we're trying to recover not only internally, but externally a reputation issue. Yeah, that sounds like a very challenging, but also a very very successful intervention, uh, Maureen. It, with this client, it was, and so I'd be curious to hear a little bit more about agility, if you can share that now, or you're also welcome to go on to the next idea you want us to take away. Well, here's, a, here's, a, here's an interesting thing. So um, from the agility world is if you consider the job of the day-to-day manager, you talked about customer service people. We teach them, or we the, the paradigm around change right now is that change is the exception, that organizations are static and then change comes along. And that's just not the reality. So the reality is it's all change always. From a new member of the department to someone retiring to a reorganization to someone getting promoted to the micro-level changes all the way up to billion and dollar change programs, right? Change is part of every manager's day job. And and it, it might be inaccurate to say that 80% 80% of every manager's job is change, but certainly 80% of the headaches of every manager are, to, are, are dealing with organizational changes. I, I think most people would nod at that. They say uh, 50% of statistics are made up on the moment. So in a way, that's not empirically justified. But when you talk to managers day in and day out, most of what keeps them awake at night is how do they cope with changes or how do they enact changes themselves? So here's our question. Then, why are we teaching managers that change is the exception? Because if something is supposed to be an exception to the norm, it's received as a disruption to the status quo. But in a sense, we don't have a status quo. It's all change always. The um, uh, pre-BCE philosopher Heraclitus said, uh, you cannot step into the same river twice. And by that, he meant that everything is always changing, that life is a series of flows and fluxes. And this notion of stability or this notion of equilibrium, 
one of the things that economic economists talk about equilibrium, uh-huh. they're fantasies. The yeah. world isn't like that. And so when our mindset is, is, is uh, fixed on the notion that life should be different than it is, life should be static, I shouldn't have this project to deal with, we are not equipping people psychologically. We're also not equipping them, Maureen, I don't think, um, in terms of the education we give managers. So one of the things I did in the book was study MBA programs to see what's the level of change education Let's take a 35-year-old senior manager or a 40-year-old young director. And well, how much change education have they received by the time they get to these important places in their organization? If you look at a Harvard MBA, there are 16 mandatory modules and there are 100 electives. And of all of that, only one of those is a brief module on change, on change management, if you want, or leading change. Now, I find that an extraordinary thing. Because if you accept the hypothesis that 80% of what managers do is manager lead change, then to have it be a fraction, less than 1% of what's a standard management education, a standard business school education, we're equipping people very, very poorly. And I think, again, we're treating the business world as if it's a static entity and business as if they're static entity and that change is episodic, is the word I use in the book. Whereas it's constant and we need to be equipping every manager in every organization with a minimal set of change competencies so that they can, in a sense, create this agile organization. Because change management, the firefighting that I've done um, when I've been called into a project, usually a year after the project's begun, and people are walking out and downing tools in, in, you know, with anxiety or anger at some change that's not going particularly well, they often ask somebody like me to come in and sprinkle my change pixie dust on the workers to make them happier with the changes that the senior execs are trying to drive through. So if, and in a way I'm a band-aid in that I'm a band-aid and a a useful and sometimes well-paid band-aid, I want to add, but, but a band-aid to help leaders and managers do things that they ought to be good at doing by themselves. You know, they ought to be a 35 year old senior manager or 40 year old young director ought to be competent at leading his team and leading his organization for change. They ought to be competent at managing that kind of complexity. And we ought to be giving people the tools to manage conflict, to negotiate, to engage stakeholders, to inspire stakeholders. All of the things that are in the day-to-day armory of uh, change experts, such as yourself, I think ought to be in the armory of the standard, you know, work-a-day 35-year-old manager. And so that's part of the answer, I think, to change agility is we want to equip the whole organization with the sorts of skills that now only reside with specialists. So that's rather a long-winded answer to your question there. I hope you don't mind. No, I think that's really helpful. This idea, and and it's, again, part of the underpinning of this show, right, that as the world is changing, what we learned in MBA school, especially of those of us who got it a long time ago, needs to be refreshed. So it was useful, and it's gotten me where I am today, but we need to augment what we are already good at with some core skills. And what I hear you talking about is an underpinning in my thinking, and we, we look at resilience in part as managing our thinking and reframing expectations. And again, the the one that you've pointed to as foundational is this leader 2050. And between now and 2050, we are going to be subjected to multiple concurrent ongoing change 
that we will struggle to manage if we don't change how we think, how we behave, our mindfulness, as much our insides as our actions. So on that note, we're going to go to a quick break. This is Maureen Metcalf with Paul Gibbons, and we're focusing on the science of organizational change. We'll be right back. Many industries have been revolutionized by technology in the last decade. Books, music, TV, communications, and now it's happening to our money and the way we pay. Tune in to Breaking Banks with Brett King for a look at how technology and customer behavior will bring about more changes in banking in the next 10 years than in the last 200 years. Listen every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific on Voice America Business Channel or on AM 1160 The Voice. You'll never look at your bank account the same again. Metcalf & Associates is a management consulting and leadership development firm dedicated to helping leaders, their management teams, and their organizations implement innovative leadership and business practices to help create market differentiation necessary to thrive in this rapidly changing environment. As the author of eight award-winning leadership books, Maureen Metcalf and her associates are positioned to help you and your organization grow and thrive. Visit Metcalf-Associates.com. Maureen is ready to discuss your needs and tailor a solution to meet your needs through her expertise in keynote speaking, leadership coaching and training, transformational and organizational growth consulting. For your business, we can help with facilitated leadership retreats, organizational planning, culture alignment, individual and organizational assessments, online leadership development programs, and one-on-one or corporate-wide leadership development sessions. Move forward with Metcalf and Associates. Visit Metcalf-Associates.com. If you are a beginning or aspiring entrepreneur, have you thought about a coach or mentor? For instance, think about sports figures who have successfully become entrepreneurs and leaders in business. They started out with a coach in their respective sport, and many work with a coach today to help them continue to achieve their goals. Listen for ESCN with host Michael Dawson and co-host Angelia Hobson and Diane Daniels. Tune in Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. Eastern, 9 a.m. Central, and 7 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Business and rebroadcasts on Voice America Sports. Do you need directions to solve financial future? If so, the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern for the Money Answer Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. You are listening to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. To reach Maureen Metcalf or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to info at metcalf-associates.com. Now, back to this week's program. 
Hi, welcome back to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. You're with Maureen Metcalf and Paul Gibbons, and we're talking about Paul's new book, The Science of Organizational Change, and how it how important it is for us as leaders to continually build our skills around org change and org transformation, both as leaders and in changing our organizations. So, Paul, you were talking about the biggest ideas in the book, and and let's go into now neo-behaviorism. Yes, and I think, I think you know, to do justice to our time, I think if I can touch on neo-behaviorism, uh, touch on evidence-based management, and maybe even go into anti-fragility, you know, some people accuse the, me of uh, writing a book that's like drinking from a fire hose. There's so much, uh, you know, there's entire books written on mindfulness and it's a third of a chapter. There's an entire book on changing habits and I've consigned that to a third of a chapter. There's an entire book on cognitive biases and that's a third of a chapter. So, so in a sense, I'm going to go through some very complex ideas very quickly. Um, uh, behaviorism or old behaviorism was the idea in psychology that humans were like rats in a maze. Basically, it was stimuli and responses. And the architects of behaviorism, two, two of the 20th century's most famous psychologists were B.F. Skinner and, uh, and J.D. Watson. And they uh, thought that the feelings and thoughts and beliefs that are part of our mental life were irrelevant to understanding human behavior. And this may seem a fairly quaint concept, but any time you give a kid a timeout or a naughty step, as we call it in England, or anytime you talk about carrots and sticks, anytime you talk about these strategies that people talk about in organization, you're endorsing a behaviorist view of the world, which is that to change behavior, somehow some sort of punishment or reward will get it done. And to make a long story very, very short, punishment over never, almost never works. So I was speaking to a famous criminologist the other day, and I said, what... Uh, is the evidence in the criminal justice system. And he says, whatever the criminal justice system does in terms of punishment and reward, it's exactly the opposite of what science would tell you is the right thing to do. We have this notion that longer sentences or three-strike rules will change behavior, and we have now several decades of evidence that that doesn't happen. And it's not just in criminal justice. I just use that in one example, but it also applies to punishment in organizations and punishment with children. And so... Thankfully, the world and how we think about punishment is slowly beginning to change in some domains. On the idea of rewards, ideas are changing much more slowly. And again, this is a very complex topic, but rewards don't work the way they would work in rats in a maze pushing a lever. So, for example, if I need to move some boxes into my attic... And I say to my next door neighbor, come and help me move some boxes into my attic. Would you mind? Uh, do me a favor. 100% of neighbors will say, sure, I'd love to do so. But if I went to my neighbor and said, look, I want to move some boxes into my attic. Can I give you five bucks to help me out? They'd look at me as if I were from Mars. So clearly there's something there where I've broken some sort of social understanding with my neighbor about some sort of reciprocity arrangement. So rewards, in a sense, would make them less likely to do that. So that's, in a sense, a trivial example of a very big problem because a lot of the world is organized around executive compensation being based around rewards and stock options based around rewards. And if you examine the research it doesn't work nearly as well or nearly as consistently or nearly as accurately as 
we'd like. So that's the problem with old behaviorism. And it's sewn through the fabric because of the powerful influence of those two psychologists in the 20th century. It's sewn through the fabric of how we think about incentives in our world. So neo-behaviorism basically is how do you incentivize people without coercing them to change behavior, without either using sticks or carrots. And I'm just going to draw the listener's attention to a book called Nudge by uh, two academics, Thaler and Sunstein, who talk about basically handing over control of behavior to the environment. And uh, in a very brief way, what we can do is structure people's choices so that they make choice, they are free to choose, so they're not free to choose when you coerce, so they're free to choose, but we can organize choices in such a way as they make the right choice. And so one example is, for example, trying to change the behavior around people in cinemas, people um, who buy popcorn. And one of the things that affects popcorn consumption is, unsurprisingly, the size of the container. And so it may seem a trivial, trivial example, but it was the most important thing. You know, when people are on diets, they say use smaller plates. And again, you're using a sort of behavioral uh, method to change how much you eat. You're not changing your beliefs, so you're not changing your mindset. All you're doing is changing the environment to try and produce a change. Now, it's a, it's, it's a, such an interesting area that there have been entire government um, bodies set up to explore the way that this can be used in public health. But very few people in the world, our world, Maureen, of organizational change are talking about choice architecture. And choice architecture is one of the neo-behaviorist concepts. And there are several others, but one of them is behavioral safety. And, and one of them we talked about at the beginning of the program is habit change. And so there are new ways of looking at behaviorism. Because what we want in organizations and societies is we don't want to just change the way people think. We want to change behaviors. Um, and so why we care very deeply about what people think and feel, what we really need is behavioral change. You know, we need behavioral change in organizations and we need behavioral change in societies to create the kind of world that we want to create. And so how you do that without coercing people is one of the most fascinating and important topics, I think, for the 21st century. So that's neo-behaviorism, and uh, there's an entire chapter on that. Um, I talked a little bit about evidence-based management. I think one of the things we need to do is we need a greater level of accountability particularly in the world of human resources and um, organizational change, we need greater accountability for results. And there was a revolution in medicine in 1998 with the publication of a paper on evidence-based medicine, which basically says an idea that will seem so uncontroversial if you say it, but the work that we do in organizations or the work that we do if we were doctors should be based on what evidence says works. But that's not what we do in organizations. We do things in organizations because a guru proposes that it might be the right thing. Or we do things in organizations because we're good at them. Or we do things because they're a habit in organizations. And so evidence-based management is, in a sense, a clarion call to start to evaluate empirically the results of our interventions in organizations so that we're making better and better choices. So it originated in medicine, but now there's a whole field of evidence-based policy, and I'm excited to say there's a field now of evidence-based management, which looks at the effectiveness of our policies so that we can make better choices. And people say, well, what are the bad choices we're making? I'll give a very, a very easy example. In the way we select workers, I've been interviewed for 
jobs that pay large six-figure sums. And largely the method that they use to select workers is something called the unstructured interview or the chat interview. And that has almost no predictive power. So organizational psychologists have studied this in enormous detail. And those conversations, which are at the meat of most of how people are hired, are almost unpredictive of how successful someone will be in role. So that's a fascinating thing. That means 90% of what we're doing in the recruitment process is a waste of time and money. And as I said, in my own experience, I've been interviewed for, you know, so over my long career, you know, dozens of, you know, very big ticket jobs. And uh, almost all of the selection procedure has been based around something that's no more predictive than astrology. And so that's, in a sense, the opposite of evidence-based management. How do we continue to do things that, um, that fly in the face of what uh, organizational science says is the right thing? And so readers will find a, a chapter on evidence-based management because I think it's one of the great things, the great hopes for the 21st century is running more efficient organizations based on what science tells us is the correct way to proceed. And with that, I'm going to take a breath, Maureen. <laughs> so, so the <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so the evidence-based idea is: I talk about leaders innovating how they lead. We talk about what what Gallup research is happening and employee engagement. What Daniel Pink talks about with regard to carrots and sticks, uh, and and thousands of other good researchers. And yet, as organizational leaders we don't yet have an efficient way to, to deliver this evidence and in a way that I can integrate in addition to doing all the things I'm already doing for you know, 12 to 16 hours a day at work. So I wonder if you have a quick answer to, as a leader, how might I be more evidence-focused and not have to over-invest in figuring out which evidence I care about? Ah, yes, indeed. Well, well, uh, and, there, and, there, and there's a very big question. So, I mean, evidence-based um, management calls, asks us to call into question, you know, what we take as um, truth or what we take as gospel in the work we do as organizational leaders or as organizational change practitioners. And uh, one of the things that we can do. I mean, there's a long sort of process that I propose. And one of the things that we can do is try and stomp out pseudoscientific thinking in organizations. And I'm not going to go through a catalog uh, now. It would be more time than we have available. But I spent a lot of time talking about organizational pseudoscience and stuff that's quite frankly no more, has no more predictive validity than astrology. Um, and so that's one of the – that's not, that's not a very detailed answer, but stomping out pseudoscience and anti-science thinking. Anti-science thinking is basically uh, when I'm presented with evidence, it, uh, I discount the evidence, scientific evidence in favor of my own opinion or in favor of, of uh, some preconceived bias that I have. So, um, so those are two – if you will, ideas is stamping out anti-science and pseudoscience in organizations. And I have, a, as I said, a chapter on anti-science and pseudoscience. And there are some very good books by a Stanford professor. There's a book called Half-Truths and Dangerous Myths and Half-Truths by a guy called Jeffrey Pfeffer, which I think is, should be mandatory reading for anybody interested in evidence-based management. 
Try if that's not a very very detailed answer, uh, Maureen. It's a huge it's a huge topic. I I get it, and so it sounds like you're talking a lot in the book as a theme that weaves through is, is this idea of mindful, better thinking, addressing biases, addressing anti science. So it's it's a shift in my mindset, driving a shift in my thinking, driving a shift in my behavior, all in service of being more rigorous. And more accountable. Yep, absolutely. So we only have a few minutes left. Let's spend, I realize you can't summarize all of uh, Taleb's work in a minute, since his book is probably 2,000 pages, on anti-fragile, but at least introduce the concept to us. Well, that's a fascinating thing. So um, Taleb is a statistician, and he's written four books which are effectively unapplied statistics. And um, I think most of your listeners who are unfamiliar with his name w- would let out a great big yawn or, 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 or want to run for the hills. How, how possibly, how, possibly dr- how dry and how irrelevant to the day-to-day practice of management could, uh, could uh, someone who's a statistician be? His books are bestsellers and they've sold us a million and they're, they're, they're worth every penny because he really is a radical thinker who, who's someone who's shaking up the business establishment. But one of his great ideas is anti-fragility. And he contrasts three different types of organizations. One is fragile, one is robust, and one is anti-fragile. So fragile is an intuitive concept. We all know a champagne glass cracking under stress. A robust organization is what we try and do, and that's an organization that can bounce back. An anti-fragile organization will prosper from stresses. And so this happens in ecosystems. But he says when we try and make things robust, in a sense, protect them from the volatility of the world, we make them more fragile. So we try to make them robust, we make them more fragile. And what we need to be thinking about is how to make organizations anti-fragile. So how to make organizations that prosper from stresses. And so to give one example, when we go to the gym and we lift weights, what we're doing is breaking down muscle tissue. However, what we're doing in that, just through that destructive process, is building a more robust um, muscle uh, mass for our body. So and so um, there's an example from, also from chemistry. Let's, well, let's, use, let's use this as a point to wrap up because I think we only have oh, about sorry. a minute and a half. Okay, um, good. And I, wa- I want to make sure we, I summarize what you've talked yes, about. Yes, indeed. Thanks. Yeah, sorry about that. There we are. So Paul's book is The Science of Organizational Change. And takeaways I'm, I have from this book is anti-fragile being one of the most important. As we are in a time of multiple concurrent changes, how do I build an organization that has the ability to prosper from stress? And characteristics in that are building agility, helping people think and expect change, addressing their cognitive biases, being more scientific in their thinking, more evidence-based. So a lot of uh, wonderful constructs and frameworks and tools in Paul's book to help you as the listener delve into how might you update your ability to transform organizations. So I want to close by inviting our listeners to email me at info at metcalf-associates.com. If you have any questions, I'll pass them along to Paul. And 
this is innovative leaders driving thriving organizations. I hope you heard something in today's conversation that you can take away beyond uh, purchasing Paul's book that you might be able to apply quickly. Thank you very much for joining us, and we'll be with you again next week. Thank you again for joining us this week. Please tune in for another edition of Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations with Maureen Metcalf next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope to see you here next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 